97.2 camfm.co.uk on air and online your camfm welcome to the science of fiction this week with me andy and me will and we would normally be broadcasting live but due to uh, the scheduling constraint of my second daughter appearing hopefully around about two o'clock today well listeners today is actually wednesday in our diagram but for you it's sunday so uh, hopefully alessandra will have appeared four days ago yeah days ago time travel it's incredible this is a message from the past so please don't send messages into the studio using all the um you know the the, the web form and so on because we're not going to be there to read them but if you want to send us some feedback on the show you can email us on show at scienceoffiction.co.uk and we'll pick it up and um, come back to it in the next show hopefully yeah so, so this week so this week's theme is um, kind of inspired by you know, kind of constrained writing and you know games jams and things. There was a video games jam uh, in Cambridge last weekend which had this theme of everyone puts words in a hat and then you draw out two words from the hat and you have to make a game on that theme. So we thought we'd do something a little a little bit similar, also a little bit different. So we yeah. put our music our music libraries on shuffle and picked the first five tracks from each of them and then obviously whittled that down a bit and thought we'd try and work from there. So it's Will's choices coming up first, and it is Inside the Internet by Thomas Truax. I used to have these friends that one day up and went inside the internet. Inside the internet And when I miss these friends I just do a search for them Inside the internet Inside the internet And now I see them through my looking glass City, your station, your Cambridge, your Cam FM. Welcome back to the Science of Fiction. That was Inside the Internet by Thomas Truax. 
who is uh, actually a friend of um, one of our sister shows, CamFM Breakthrough, which I think this term is running on Fridays at 9pm. Um, I ran into him in Edinburgh and he, he, see, yeah, he actually is him. It isn't just some kind of imposter on the internet. Um, he, he happened to come across um, someone from, the, from that show tweeting about his, his music and has been listening ever since. Wasn't it something really interesting? Like it was the first time he'd ever played it as well. Oh, I think it was because he'd um, because he was doing one song a month, so um, he would often send them to the show so they could play them like first thing or pretty much first thing when when he released a new track. So that was cool. But one of Thomas Truex's things is you may you may have been able to hear maybe not so much from that track, but from some of his others is that he makes his own instruments. So he has, I think it's called the. Bonophone or something, something which sounds awful. Oh, he, but can't, he, has, he you know, can't have used the name Bonophone. Really? It's possible he didn't. I, I, I forget. He has all kinds of names for things. But you know, he has kind of French horns with attached springs and stuff to, with rattles and whistles and all kinds of things. Um, but if, so if you, this reminded me that a few weeks ago I retold a joke about the sound a tree makes when it grows. Um, Rachel, an, a science fiction alumnus, wrote in to say that there are some hippie types in America somewhere that attach electrodes to trees and use a machine that turns the electro gradient between different parts of the tree into sounds. And apparently it turns out it's very pretty, but she doesn't have a link to it. Um, have you heard of this, Andy? No, no, but it does remind me of something. You know, you may have heard of NMR, as in nuclear magnetic resonance, the same thing that powers an MRI machine. And you'll find one in hospitals. And what happens is when you uh, try and work out what are the different hydrogen atoms in your molecule are, because you're trying to find out what the environment is they're in so you can work out what the molecule is if you're in a chemistry lab, you basically whack it really hard with a magnetic pulse. And that pulse uh, causes the molecule to ring. And what you oh. can do is if you, if you take off the carrier frequency, you can actually get audio frequencies out. So I've actually heard uh, in chemistry lectures people playing things like jingle bells on atoms. This, this is from the same department as pe- how people always end up playing you know, the Mario theme on their Tesla coil and stuff. Yes. When you have any, any large apparatus that can play a tune. Well, wasn't it uh, We Are The Champions was played on a Formula One engine by, I think it was Renault. Because <laughs> they just right. changed for the revs. Nice stunt. So yeah, I, I, I tried to find this um, electrodes and trees thing. I actually couldn't find anything about it, but well, mainly because it's hard to Google for um, uh, electronic trees because there's all kinds of you know family trees and you know, hippie trees. Tr- hippies are quite keen on trees in general. But um, I did find some stuff about people experimenting with using trees kind of like giant potato batteries. So you may have done the experiment at the school where you stick two, two electrodes into a potato and then it powers a clock. Um, you can do something similar apparently with trees. So It wouldn't work very well. Well, apparently it's just some people at MIT looking into it as a potential source of renewable energy. Um, uh, that's that's worrying, because the thing about a potato battery is a potato doesn't do anything other than provide the connection between two bits of metal. So if you're doing it in school with beakers, you would use a thing called a salt bridge. So it's actually the metal that's the battery, which is no different than a normal battery. Huh. I think of this thing, they, they had a very small voltage gradient down the tree, and they could... Um, massage that somehow into pulses of electricity so it was a kind of case of like this kind of works maybe but it's not really viable immediately oh well but this this whole show this whole song about you know losing your friends inside the internet seems kind of appropriate um given that this is this show is made possible through the magic of the internet yes because me and will currently sitting on either side of cambridge chatting it's incredible using a, 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 a nameless communications technology um so, but way, way back in, was it the 70s when Star Trek came out? It was before I was born, which would be the 70s. Let's go, let's go late 70s. Um, they had this whole, they had, they had the whole communicator thing. They had, you know, 
flippy thing, kind of like a, like a the clamshell phones that were popular a few years ago. There are ago. some great episodes where the clamshells break, like modern phones as well. So they flip them open and you see the top fall off. <laughs> I, I yeah. remember seeing that in a few episodes and they sort of hold it together for the rest of the scene. Yeah, I've only I've only owned one flippy phone and the yeah the flippy thing broke. Um, but it's it's kind of funny that pretty much everything which they use the communicator for seems to come to pass. People have you know services like Google Latitude and GPSs in their phones so you can find your friends and we've got voice activation of you know our phones like hey phone Andy um, and also when people don't have mobile phone coverage as often seems to be the subplot in Star Trek you know they're on this planet oh no um, the communicator's broken and suddenly everyone's really stranded and this seems to happen to real people you know about their days the mobile phone mask crashes you're lost. Yep without Google Maps I'm stuck. One of the one of the very few life-changing inventions, or, well, life-changing life-changing innovations on phones. Yeah, well, trouble is, it doesn't work on the London Underground. Not, well, I think not for long, because in many undergrounds in the world, they have um, mobile phone receivers under the ground. So hopefully soon we'll have that, and then we'll never be free of people talking very self-importantly. You do. Have you come across the fact there's actually an app for Cambridge where if you've got an Android phone, sadly not if you have an Apple phone. Uh, you can track all the GPS locations of all the buses. Oh, that's nifty. Uh, I, I've seen I've seen similar things for um, the London transport systems. But that, yeah, uh, g- genuinely useful. And the information is all there, and it's all public, so it may as well be made available to everyone yep. on their phone. You can also get over the web, but it would be kind of handy to have it on my my phone. But I don't have an Android phone. I just well, weep may- a bit. Maybe you should switch. Maybe anyway, I should. We'll, we'll be back back with you after this, which is one of Andy's choices.
and across Cambridge. Your station. Your Cam FM. Welcome back to Science of Fiction and that was Supermassive Black Hole by Muse. And I have some show notes here from Will saying that apparently the more massive a black hole the less dense it is. I, I yes. So, so, so it's something to do with the fact that the um, that um, density is, before, is, is, is has a square law to the radius of the um, well, it's a sort of ratio of mass to volume is uh, uh, the volume of a sphere is obviously goes by the cube of the radius and apparently density is by the uh, mass is by the square of it or something and so as a result if you if you have a very massive black hole it's actually less it has less sort of tidal force at the event horizon so in many ways it interacts more weakly with its surroundings oh okay so it's the tidal force at the event horizon i'm still not sure i agree i have to check this This is really weird but i suppose this is the problem because a black hole is in effect a singularity so we're taking a limit of two functions and we get weird answers out right and also i guess that that, that they're relatively poorly observed in the real world yeah i I certainly haven't gone to one recently no no research budgets in the the commercial sector don't really extend to space travel unfortunately Mm -hmm. shame so yeah, so science fiction, of course, the artificial black hole is one of the standard magical devices. Uh, apparently, yeah. the portal gun contains a black hole. Yeah, apparently it's, it's extremely small and it can be used to fire these you know, two portals. It's, it's not really clear why. You think that it could just be... Well, I suppose you, know, you could just explain it as wormholes or something. It doesn't really matter. It's just kind of, hey, here's a word to explain this. Um, but there, there was a film called Event Horizon, which, uh, of course, is... is a feature of black holes, but th- that wasn't really mentioned in the film. And they supposedly used a fu- an artificial black hole to open a portal between two points in space. But oh no, they opened a portal to hell instead. Yeah, that was accidental, though. Yeah, but um, I, don't, I don't remember it involving you know, very much to do with you know, black holes beyond like, hey, here's a magic thing which lets us open this portal which enables the film to happen. But that's fine. I mean, black holes, I suppose, are exciting because quite a lot of physics breaks down around them. You know, something which is a point mass gets divided by zeros all over the place, which if you ever type into your calculator, it will just throw a nasty error at you. And it's just because mass... I wouldn't say it doesn't work there, but... Works differently there. Yes, that's probably... So that's probably people who spend their entire life looking at that part of mass. But the idea of using black hole, artificial black holes to make energy, of course, makes a lot of sense, because when things fall into a black hole, they give out a huge amount of energy. They also, if you want to get things to go under fusion then it crushes things together. So they, they have their uses. Um, I, th- I think I, th- I think it was a Stephen Baxter novel, which has um, uh, poss- possibly from the um, Manifold series, where at the end of one of them, he sort of fast-forwarded to you know, 10 million years in the future, and humanity is basically subsisting by being black hole farmers. They're kind of herding black holes together to, you know, when they become too weak to um, join them together into new ones, and then they're trying to harvest the power they can get from them because every other source of, el- of energy in the universe is gone. So this is the heat death of the universe, so we'll start exactly, to fade yeah. away. Exactly. So the, the, mean, the, only, the only thing that's... But how do you get energy out of a black hole? You get energy out as it falls in, I think. Uh, I don't okay. think you can actually get anything out of a black hole. Though they do evaporate, of course. Do you know this? I didn't know that. So it was, a, it was Stephen Hawking who came up with the original idea. And if a particle spontaneously creates on the event horizon, 
one half can fall in, the antiparticle, let's say, and one part can fly out, say, the actual particle. So there's no energy created. But the antiparticle hmm. would annihilate something inside the black hole, and the thing flying out would carry some energy with it. And huh. so, so, so it's almost like energy out of nothing, except that it isn't. It isn't. It's it's so basically black holes evaporate slowly, very slowly. Huh. Once they've gobbled up everything, because if they've got there's like an entire galaxy pouring into them, as the ones at the centre do seem to, of galaxies that is, then um, they're going to be eating up stars quicker than they're spitting out half particles. No full particles, just ones that spontaneously come to existence. Because they do this all the time. Normally right, they just annihilate straight away afterwards because there's no event horizon. But of course, uh, yeah. If they're if they're created just over just over this boundary, then um, then it's separated at birth and so on. I know another place. Uh, the Romulan ships in Star Trek: The Next Generation, instead of having a antimatter matter reactor, they have an artificial wormhole. Not wormhole, artificial black hole. Okay, and there was there was something about that in the 2009, 2010 Star Trek film about black holes and rebooting the timeline. But again, it was just kind of an excuse to start the, to kind of have a reboot of the Star Trek timeline without annoying people who care about uh, continuity. Uh, I think we should just annoy people who care about continuity when we're rebooting. That's the whole point. Absolutely. Yeah. But, but the um, the whole kind of por- portal to hell thing reminded me of, you know, everyone's, well, my favorite book at the moment, Perdido Street Station, where the, the government, you know, has, actually has an, an embassy in hell, basically. They, they, they're on, you know, diplomatic terms with demons. Um, but in the course of the book, they, they talk to them, you know, very briefly, and the, the demons, you know, are really not their biggest enemy, which is quite quite a nice twist. You know, they, they, they've just kind of, you know, got, get, they've got along with their kind of antagonistic neighbors, but they don't really have any pro- active problems with them. That, that's quite but demons are used in quite a few things as an alternative to the standard science fiction bad guys. I believe the computer game from Blizzard Diablo uses uh, angels and demons style environment instead of the standard fantasy. And I think it's uh, quite a nice idea to sort of use the Christianity mythology rather than the Tolkien-esque mythology. It makes a uh-huh. nice change. Yeah. So anyway, um, I think we should well, stay in the future, I think, for something which some of you might recognise. Yes. So here's a message from the past to the future.
107.2 camfm.co.uk your station your camfm welcome back to the science of fiction and that was the main theme tune to terminator 2 by brad feitel apparently who hasn't really done that much other co- other composition although he did um, compose uh, some of the soundtrack for an- another arnie film uh, true lies true lies i love that film it's a great film it's a great combination of comedy and action I don't remember it too well, other than that I don't think it was very convincingly acted. It was, it's it's a bit too spoofy. I mean, it's about a guy who's who's a secret agent. His wife gets conned into thinking her having an affair with someone who's pretending to be a secret agent. It's it's n- hmm. not the plot for a hard-hitting, serious show. Relatedly, I discovered recently that these days um, Arnold Schwarzenegger has to have voice coaching to make him sound less American and make him sound more accented because, of course, he's been living in the United States for so long that his accent softened. But having a very strong Austrian accent is part of his shtick. So he's taking vocal coaching in sound in, in having a, you know, a less good accent. So I didn't want to talk too much about Terminator 2 because the whole reason that is actually in my MP3 collection is from when we previously talked about it on the show. And one thing we've obviously talked about was the... Um, singularity and how the rise of the machines quite an obvious topic to terminate but we've also spoken about the idea of downloading human minds into computers which is something that appears a lot in science fiction i know will has generally said that he finds very unlikely in any near future point also he's terrified about them getting bugs and not working properly yeah i'm, I'm, I'm sticking in meat in some kind of meat for now i think so I was recently reading as I was waiting for my car to get MOT'd and I'll probably be reading some more of it when I'm waiting for my daughter to appear later today because these things <laughs> don't happen on demand. Um, it was a book by Alistair Reynolds uh, called Zima Blue and it's a collection of short stories and he had a really nice, one of the stories in there I think is really cool. And it's Alistair Reynolds' standard idea that some part of humanity is about to get wiped out. I don't know why, he loves having these humanity on the brink of humanity's release something that's going to wipe itself out he isn't he's isn't a very happy guy really well it's, it, it, almost all the best stories are you know the protagonists are you know in some kind of mild mild or serious peril it just happens that Alistair Reynolds protagonist is typically the entire human race and he is a space opera guy he, he does you know space opera is about thinking big and you know he's written books that cover huge amounts of time period and this is another one of them because what he's done again is gone for relativistic units. That's saying one governed by Einstein's laws of relativity. So nobody can get anywhere faster than the speed of light. And the story opens with this ship trying to escape its pursuers. And they know they're going to be caught up within you know, 80 years. But at the same time, the, for people watching, it's only going to take six years because of the time dilation. And huh. eventually they realize they're going to head into another fleet. So they have nowhere to hide. And it ends up with them finding a solar system, which is rather bizarre. And I haven't heard this before. He, because he is actually, an, I think he's an astrophysicist. If not, he's a cosmologist. One of yeah, he's de- he's definitely trained in like very highly trained in some branch of he's physics. He's got a PhD. Yeah, uh, and he's and it seems like seems like everyone who isn't me has a PhD. Yeah, well, we'll get you one. We'll buy one from some Indian university. I'm sure they give it out cheap. I can buy it from wherever Dr. Dillian McKeith bought her, bought her PhD and hang it in my, my toilet, you know. <laughs> Goldacre style. Yeah. So he obviously likes his, his relativity and his, this sort of arguments because he likes the universe to be as realistic in his mind as possible. And also, I think relativity provides a really interesting way to come up with a storyline which has got constraints, which people don't often use. You know, people often just around faster than light, but actually it makes it interesting when you have these delays. 
And what they find in the solar system is they find the sun's burning too bright. And basically the star's too bright because there's a shadow universe underneath which only mass can get through. And then that's where they want to head to. So they then find this other universe and they want to get through because only gravity affects either side. Then says they can only get across if they download their humanity into machines and then they transfer the data across. Oh, so 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 being able to transport through this depends on consciousness being a, a, simply a physical artifact. Well, here's the interesting thing is they, the story very early on talks about uh, download, the creation of artificial people to survive because originally it's a way of hiding rather than a way of escape. And the guy who invents it or reinvents it because the idea of technology has been lost and found all the time in this escaping fleet that instead of just copying the thoughts, he's copying the actual mapping of the neurons and the whole body, everything about it, so you can reconstruct it. Oh, so, so, so in a similar way to how I think it was in Existence when, they had, when someone smuggled a gun into a security briefing by making the gun out of bone so that it wouldn't show up on the metal detectors. So it functions in all the same ways that a, re that a regular gun would, but um, was, was, un was undetectable to machines looking for a very particular type of weapon. So in the same way, I guess, if you're looking for a particular kind of consciousness, you could hide by being, by being you know, by being, having the same, the same structure, but made up of metal and other things rather well, than being made up well of Well, no, it was a digital image instead of inside a computer machine again. Okay, so but, 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 so so, so, but, but, but simulating one-to-one -one exactly yeah. how it would work in, in real space, right. And then, of course, they could transmit this to the shadow universe through gravitational methods, because that's the only way information could be carried, and then they could be reformed on the other side was the idea. Oh, so they're using gravity pulses as a kind of yeah. semaphore. Oh, nice. Because it's the only information we can pass between the two universes. And for some reason, at this point in the universe, the, there was this shadowing coming through where normally it doesn't happen. I'm not sure. He's, he talks about string theory and stuff in the book, but I think it's just flavor text. I'm, he, what he talks about is shadow mass sounds very much like what I think is normally called dark matter, except he gives it some properties it wouldn't normally have and hence changes the name. And I know we've uh -huh. come across this before where people use things that are very familiar and just slightly change it for storyline. Uh, but but keep but keep it similar enough that the reader can relate to it. Yeah. So speaking of you know, keeping things relatable to people, here's something that maybe some people with jobs can relate to.
97.2 camfm.co.uk on air and online your camfm so welcome back to the science of fiction and that was slave to the wage by placebo which is that's off black market music ages ago are this are they still performing i think they do i'm sure i've seen gigs appear if they're not I, 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 I guess when, when when you get to that kind of you know, le- level in your career, then you really can just like go around and play a gig occasionally if you want to. But are they? I mean, they never really, after their second album, they never really hit it off because black market music didn't do that well and they sort of slowly faded away. Sleeping with Ghosts is a brilliant album, but never really got the acceptance or people buying it that perhaps an album of that level should. Yeah, that's a shame. But so what, I actually didn't know this song. I mean, I, I guess this demonstrates what, what you're saying about it being a little bit unsuccessful because I, I hadn't come across it before. Um, and then what's the video? And it looks suspiciously similar to Gattaca, uh, or the, to the, to the, to the uh, working environment in Gattaca. And it turns out it was directly inspired by it. The part where there was a spaceship launching gave the game away as well. So Gattaca is um, this film set, set in, in its own words in the not too distant future where at a space agency. Um, and the protagonist is trying to hide his his genetic genetic uh, imperfections. Well, it's genetic heritage, I think, is a better way of putting it. The idea that they've decided what he's capable of by looking at his genetics. Exactly, um, and and he, and he 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 believes he's capable of more than his the genetic screening says he is, and so has to try and um, hi, hi, he works extremely hard to disguise himself and allow himself to be judged on his merits, not on his genetics. So it's, so it's kind of ironic that the, the, the song is all about, you know, being stuck in this, you know, in, in this in this job, you know, but all it takes is one decision, a lot of guts, a little vision to get it, to get it out of it. Whereas in Gattaca, the protagonist is taking a lot of guts and vision and cunning and, you know, risk to keep exactly the job that the, vi- the video is showing you. I think the lovely thing about Gattaca is they've made it in such a way that it's not the fastest of movies, it's not pacey, it's a very gentle story without being, you know, lacking in things going on. You always are engaged by it. And also they've managed to make this movie which is really quite beautiful and doesn't date. You don't sit there going, what time period is in? Oh, that's out of date. Because like when they're on a road, if I remember correctly, they never actually show the cars, they just show the headlights or and things like that. Use, I think they used some, some vintage cars as well, so it doesn't obviously date it to being now or, you know, the vision of what cars will look like in 10 years time so they, they, they use some vintage cars just so it's you know a, a t- kind of timeless quality yeah. yeah i definitely agree with that and it's 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 a great movie and of course the name gattaca is using just the letters g-a-t-c-n-a and they use that during the credits they fade those letters in first because they're the four bases of the genetic code so way dna is made up I, I felt i felt extremely stupid when the credits started started and i thought oh now i understand the name it all makes sense now I think the name's fairly meaningless after that, other than that, though, isn't it? Oh, sure, it is. But okay, I mean, good. It, I was just going to say because uh, I could have quite happily missed something there. Right. I, it, it wasn't essential to the understanding of, of of the film or anything. It was just a kind of case of you know, oh, here's some symbology I missed. And then, of course, there was you know, there was a, a, a double helix staircase at one point in the film. There was lots of very, very, very obvious symbology, but it wasn't not obvious in a bad way. It was just kind of like, oh, okay, I, I, I see what you did there. Yeah, and it's um quite interesting because the story of course is the whole nature or nurture argument was the person just because he had bad genetics uh, unable to do his job and the other thing was his problem was he had a heart condition I think comes up quite a bit but it wasn't there he just had a risk factor for it so why shouldn't he be allowed to try doing something that's risky it's his life but society says he can't because basically insurance costs you know yeah I, th- I think uh, I seem to remember that hearing that 
um, people refer to the Gattaca argument when discussing genetic screening and so on um, as a kind of shorthand for, you know, the people involved in this discussion know how this argument went, and if they don't, they should go watch this film. Yep. So we'll leave that discussion there and move on to something slightly different. City. Your station. Your Cambridge. Your Cam FM.
Welcome back to the Science of Fiction. That was 1-800-GHOST-DANCE by Hella. You have some their- really weird music in your music collection. Yeah, this is from their album Hold Your Horse Is. As in not horses, horse space is. And that's just to be annoying as well. Do you actually yeah, like a- that song? Um, I don't dislike it. <laughs> It's it's actually one one of the more listenable songs on that album, so um, my, my shuffle did well. It's 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 the kind of music which is which I find interesting to listen to rather than necessarily relaxing or fun. Well, oh, it, no, it, it is fun, but in a, in a different way to say you know listening to placebo or whatever. So it's an intellectual fun rather than a pleasant fun. There's a little bit of that. There are definitely bands who do the whole math rock thing better in terms of making it sound more like a song. So for example. Uh, Total Mental Blank? Giraffes, question mark, giraffes, exclamation mark. Um, that is a great band name. It's an excellent band name. And they th- their songwriting, particularly on their second album, Pink Magic, is actually very good. So they have th- these, these pieces of music which are not just, you know, a man hitting every every single fret on his guitar. Um, but they are that. But they're also, you know, constructed in such a way that they're, that, that they're engaging to listen to as well. Even though they're instrumental. There's actually a, a version of that song we just played with li- with vocals, and it's terrible. It was very obviously an afterthought, so we just I decided not to, not to go with that one. I, I'm am just still thinking of how you pronounce giraffe question mark giraffe exclamation mark. I think it's all I think giraffe 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 exactly. Um, and they wear horse heads while they play live. Anyway, um, so speaking <laughs> of ghosts, um, there's a, um, a a book was published recently. Well, not that recently now, actually, by um, a former hacker called, called well, former cracker turned white hat hacker called Kevin Mitnick. Do um, you want to explain the difference between crack and hack? Oh, uh, well, this is a really a semantic thing which is long gone. But the, the, there's the idea that if you're cracking things, you're doing things which are unauthorized and you're doing evil. Whereas if you're hacking on things, then you know. You're, it's just an intellectual exercise and doesn't necessarily mean breaking any rules like people refer to writing software in general as hacking. But that distinction is lost, so that's fine. So this is hacker Kevin Mitnick who wrote a, who wrote a biography called Ghost in the Wires about his time as you know a, a, a black hat who went around you know breaking into banks and so on. Uh, he, he eventually was uh, put in jail for several years, including a period in solitary confinement because the government believed that he w- that he knew um, intercontinental ballistic missile launch codes and he'd be able to, if he had access to a phone, he could phone some magic number and whistle into it and it would launch some nukes or something. Yeah, so modem noises, whistling, it's it's not not something I would think would actually happen. But I remember hearing people telling me when I was a kid that people could do this and I assume it was this story just oozing out into... Into the consciousness, legend, well, yeah. Well, because there's because there's sort of a grain of truth that you know military systems used to be connected to the internet. Or the internet came out of military networks, but they, of course, why would you? You wouldn't connect a launch system to the to, to the internet or to the phone system, and um, but also the, uh, Captain Crunch and various other so-called freakers uh, used to be able to whistle the tone that was used by the American phone distance to give you long distance calls, so you, you could you could call anywhere for free. Um, so I guess it's kind of a combination of those two things. But eventually the government realized that um, he could not, in fact, whistle launch codes and let him out of solitary confinement, put him into a regular prison. Maybe, but maybe their fear is revealing. Maybe it really is um, something which they had wrong with their systems and had to fix. Well, this, this would have been Cold War era, so they were terrified of a lot of things, weren't they? Yeah, I guess so. This is kind of a fear of the unknown. And when the unknown might involve nukes, then maybe you should err on the side of caution. Yeah. But... Kevin Mitnick's taste on some of the kind of modern wave of hackers is quite interesting. He sa- he points out that when he was doing this, he was his goal was at all costs not to be noticed, and the fact that he was noticed, of course, ended up with him being thrown in jail. 
Whereas the kind of new wave of hackers like, you know, Lulzsec and Anonymous and so on, um, their entire purpose is to be detected. They're, they're just trying to make a ruckus. Um, and of course, in the case of Lulzsec, this has ended up with pretty much all of them being arrested. So Have they all been arrested now? Because I knew they found a few. I assume they're a lot larger than that. Oh, they found some number of them and they've disbanded. So I assumed that they're basically all in jail now. But there was kind of a funny thing that one of them was found uh, on Shetland, uh, which is a collection of tiny islands off the top of Scotland. And so you had, you know, national press all, you know, crowding out this you know, very small two, two propeller airplane to get up there to be on hand to see him, you know, being marched out of the police station. I guess, you know, airlines never seen so much tra- so much demand. No, I was actually down at... Um the occupation in London yesterday just because I happened to be giving a lecture at a school nearby and I thought I'd check it out and check out St. Paul's at the same time. They're still there? Yeah, I thought they'd been oh, kicked wow. out but they, they, they're quite neatly to one side now. I don't know if that's where they've always been or where they moved over. And though, yeah, the people waving anonymous flags and there's a university tent as they call it where you can go and get lectures. But it, I'm quite happy to see that there are people making a political statement there still it's good we don't want to shut these things down but i was amused by the anonymous flag waving over one of the tents was was, was it the um skull and crossbones flag or was it the um the guy fawkes flag it, no it, maybe oh. i'm getting confused it's the suited guy with um question mark oh yeah it. oh yeah yeah i know the one you mean that, yeah that is the one but yeah. i think it's quite funny that the um the v for vendetta mask has become you know one of the symbols of you know of hacktivism and and of course every every legitimate sale gives money to the uh, copyright holders. Who is Warner Um, Brothers, so that's the version people use, isn't it? It's not Alan Moore's. Right, right. Which is odd because, so basically that's a symbol that's only become popular for dissidents since it got commercialised by a big company. Exactly, exactly. It's just genius. Well, of course it was very popular before, but I never saw any references to it. I guess it's just a, a... a symptom of the time where these things happened. Well, I think that's a good place to move on to our next track from my random shuffle. Is 
97.2. CamFM.co.uk. On air and online. Your CamFM. Welcome back to the Science of Fiction, and that was special by Garbage. That is that from, is that from Garbage Garbage or Garbage 2.0? I think that's 2.0. In fact, I'm certain that's 2.0. Excellent. Uh, yeah, they, they, I think they're firmly defunct now, unfortunately. Are they just not producing stuff anymore? Probably not. I haven't heard. I haven't heard anything from them for a long time. Because the third album, the Pink, oh, androgyny yeah, was on was. Ugh. It wasn't terrible, but it wasn't great. Then the album after that, which is Bleed Like Me or something along those lines. Oh, that, that, was, that was there was an album in between. Whoa. Androgyny, yeah, that was terrible. But Bleed Like Me is a very good album, and again, it's another one of these albums I feel that it just didn't. They didn't put any marketing behind it. I think they just didn't bother to push it out. And you know, bands like Radiohead do that and they get away with it. But I think someone like Garbage needed their label to get behind them. Yeah, Radiohead have ascended to a certain kind of higher level, I think, at this point. Well, even they admit, though, that if they put out an album, it only sells for about a week if they don't do any marketing. Even right. though they're that but big. They're not trying to make money, though. Right, I guess they've done that. Well, but, um, but speaking of the whole kind of online, low-marketing, pay-what-you-want type model, um, there's a novel by, a disclaimer, a friend of mine, Leonard Richardson, called uh, Constellation Games, which he's serializing by email over the course of the next, uh, well, the past few months and over the next few months. Um, and, and there's a kind of, you know, graded scale of how much you can pay um, to read this. But the first two chapters are online. We'll put a link in the show notes. But the the conceit of this book is that um, aliens have, in fact, uh, have colonized the moon. And one of the things they've been collecting for the last, you know, few millennia are the video games of... of um, of cultures past and present from around the universe and so the protagonist is a video games author and reviewer and he ends up reviewing these video games um, but one of the nice touches in this is that quite often you have you know there's contact with aliens and there's some very superficial differences in how they view the world but otherwise it's like oh you know well they're basically humanoid and so on and obviously in a novel you can get away with a lot more in terms of um, like visual differences but um, some of their video games you know support senses that humans don't have and some of them have you know different visible spectra and so they have to be shifted for humans to play them but one of the nice nicest touches is that some of them have a literal different perspective so for our, for our kind of you know, old school 2d games they were always side on or top down or kind of isometric but some of these games are bottom up so you so the camera's on the floor and you, you can see the characters you know looming above you and then you see the sky which is kind of a you know it was, it was, a, it was a nice touch to give you a kind of genuine differentness feel to how these you know different cultures were, were doing entertainment this reminds me of a uh, Taito who I had the rights at least if they didn't make the early Space Invaders released a game later for the PC called Super Space Invaders and that storyline was based on the fact that the Space Invaders arcade cabinet got lost into space and the aliens found it and copied it and then came back to attack us oh the, the, to, to attack us in the manner shown by Space Invaders yeah it, it was a genius unnecessary plot for an upgrade to Space Invaders. Excellent. I, I, I came across a thing recently saying that ID Software, who are um, famous for Doom and Quake, um, approached Nintendo with a full PC port of um, Super Mario, and they were told that PC gaming would never would never catch on and sent away. <laughs> they, of course, back in the day, did an awful lot of software, didn't they? They did platform games. They did Commander Keen, if, I believe. Right, I think so. I, th- I think they've for a long time just focused on um, the first person shooter technology technology demo sector which is fine they do it very well and Doom RPG which is a strange phone game 
Huh. I didn't know there was one of those. Yeah, go and go and look up. And goblins and ghouls, both both panned for being rubbish. I think. Actually, no. I Don't. think Doom RPG has like a really hardcore following. So the book you were talking about, Constellation Games, it really reminds me of another book called Ken McLeod Learning the World, which is uh, written from the perspective of a, I think it's a young girl, maybe a young woman, um, who's writing blog posts, as I can say, of what's going on. Oh, so, so so every chapter of the book is just a blog post of you know what happened recently on her spaceship. Or if or her perspective stuff is. Okay. So. Okay. Yeah, that, that, that's quite similar to how a lot of the chapters in Constellation games are played out. It's, it's kind of kind of kind of kind of a nice style. Yeah, it re- it reads well. It's an odd story, but it's got a it's got a pretty ending. Uh, it's a very it's sort of a fluff piece piece if that makes sense. It's uh-huh. not a there's not a thing I go wow this is a great space opera. It's, it's like oh it's it's soft, it's gentle, it's not going to revolutionise you, but at the same time it passed the time, won't leave you sad or happy, you know. Okay. I've read a couple of things by um, Ken McLeod, but one one of the things I haven't read is his Star Fraction series, which has uh, there's four books in this series, but they're not in chronological order. That's what well, they are, but they're not in the same chronological order. So you have book one, which is a standalone book, and then books two and three are sequels to book one, and then book four is a different sequel to book one, where at the very beginning of the novel someone makes a different decision. So you have this interesting thing where you have a, you have a trilogy and a pair of books, a duology, um, but the first book in those two is the same book. So he's, he he he, li- he explores literally how you know how his constructed world would have changed if someone had made one different decision and splits into parallel universes. Do you know the name of the first book? Just trying to work if I've read any of these. Um, I don't, but the internet does. Um, oh, okay. So the first the first book in the Star Fraction series is actually called the Star Fraction. Oh, I might have to check it out, but I was put off by one of his previous series. It was Engines of Light Tradition, and I read all three books, and they just went nowhere. And there's some great ideas in Cosmonaut Keep, but it just didn't didn't get where it needed to go. Um, so I think we can move on from him, because as we both said, we both stopped reading some of his books. But my, my no. Learning the World is probably one of his easier to get into, and as I say, just a nice story without being too Scottish pro. <laughs> I mean, it's well, 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 listeners, if you disagree with us, please, pl- please email show at scienceoffiction.co.uk and tell us why we should really, li- we should really read this different Ken McLeod book, which will change our perspective entirely. I think that's about all we have time for this week. Um, so, um, thank you for listening, and um, well, re- retrospective good luck, Andy and and Kim. Thank you. And we'll be back. Um, well, next week for you, and in a week and a half for us. Okay. S- see you then. Goodbye.